The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The subject of withholding or withdrawing treatment, um, of course, is related to the larger subject of euthanasia. And um, it covers many issues, and it's much in the news. Um, And uh, in one way, it's on the opposite end of of the spectrum of abortion, since it's considering ending the end rather than ending the beginning. But in reality, it's very close. Um, It's at the other end of the the spectrum from life-prolonging and life-preserving measures. And we've often reflected in this class, and it's obviously a truism, uh, how strange it is in our modern world that we should have so much freedom and try for so many extraordinary measures, both in life preservation and in the termination of, of life. And I think it's not a contradiction, really, when you think of the basic autonomy that's that's behind a lot of that. Let's. Uh, define a couple of terms. The word euthanasia literally means good death. And it generally means the act or practice of taking the life of a person who is hopelessly ill and done for reasons of mercy. Some people actually call it mercy killing, but that's come into disuse for obvious reasons. Um, The origin of the term in this usage, for those of you who like trivia, is in 1869. um, The British historian W.E.H. Leckie um, used it in this way. Um, And there has been a particularly strong interest in euthanasia in Britain right up to the present, where we have in Britain um, a euthanasia society, and we have a a hemlock society to go with it. Um, It's become customary to further distinguish between active and passive euthanasia. Now, active euthanasia is taking direct action to end a life, something like the popular view of mercy killing. And this includes a lot of possibilities. Um, Intentionally administering a lethal dose of a drug, um, and so on. Four considerations are involved according to Wenberg. I think you probably picked this up. Um, And I'll just go over them briefly. One is that A's death is intended by B and B is the cause of death or a participant. Okay, A's death is intended by B, someone else, and B, is, as it were, kills him or he participates in it. Second, there is sufficient current evidence for B 
to believe A is acutely suffering or irreversibly comatose or will become so. So that's the consideration of how serious A's illness is. Three, the primary reason for B to end A's life is the cessation of such condition. And death is not in that way more painful than life. In other words, you weigh in the balance and you come out with death is less painful than life. And four, the actual means of death must be as painless as possible. This is active uh, euthanasia the way that it's conceived in most cases. I'm not going into the extreme case of eugenics and so on. That We'll cover that in a little bit. Passive euthanasia, on the other hand, is allowing the patient to die when that patient could be kept alive by appropriate medical procedure. Wenberg, on page 8, um, describes uh, this and um, makes this differentiation here um, in, in a, a huge footnote, basing his own findings on Beauchamp and Davison. Um, and um, he adds, inter interestingly enough, um, that the definition of active euthanasia is careful and thorough, yet there are diff uh, different opinions about it. Um, for example, he says, Auto-euthanasia, or self-administered euthanasia, is a contradiction in terms. In terms. Um, additionally, euthanasia for the permanently comatose is a sensible notion. And then a long uh, parenthesis here. Um, but uh, uh, further, uh, the illness promoting the mercy killing need not be terminal or believed to be terminal for some and a lot of other disagreements. He's simply giving the, the, the general thing. Then um, he, he says here um, that uh, other variants can be added. Both active and passive euthanasia can be voluntary with the fully informed consent of the patient or involuntary against the wishes of the patient or non-voluntary, that is, without the consent of the patient, simply because the patient cannot give his or her position, he, he might be in a comatose state or whatever. And another definition, and we'll end with, with this, um, the cu it's customary to talk of ordinary and extraordinary treatment. Um, this is kind of fuzzy, according to Wenberg, but it, you've got to use some distinction. And so he comes down with the idea that ordinary treatment is treatment you're required to accept for whatever reason. Um, extraordinary treatment um, is treatment, therefore, where, which is not required. Now, he's going to um, give some suggestions for um, making uh, 
a distinction between um, ordinary pain or standard treatment, not against heroic measures, but meaning that there is a chance in ordinary treatment of living again and living well. So he doesn't like the idea of heroic measures because he feels that that gives a moral connotation, a kind of negative moral connotation. Uh, you see this doctor who wants to try something out and against the, or the good sense of everyone else. He simply says, uh, ordinary and extraordinary are, if you, if you have a chance to live or not, in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a decent way, either ordinary or extraordinary treatment may be, may be called for. In any case, extraordinary treatment can be rejected, even though that might mean shortening of life in most people's ethics. Now, obviously, um, for Christians, our view of, of euthanasia will depend, at least in part, on our view of death and of suffering. Um, for the Christian, death is the last enemy. It is an evidence of fallenness, despite the grace of the new covenant. And furthermore, it's the open door to the heavenly city. In Bach's cantata number 56, there's a marvelous aria that says, Come, O death, let go the rudder of my ship and bring me to your port. However, Many people do not share this view. For many, death is at best an unknown, or even a kind of annihilation, or some sort of automatic release. How often do we hear when someone dies? Oh, it was a blessing. She was suffering so. Um, but no idea of what's on the other side. Um, and um, medically, we've talked about the definition of death and the various criteria of death, and I've given you my position on circulatory arrest, respiratory arrest, and uh, possibly uh, brain destruction. But it's important to, to see that for the Christian, death is real, even though it has only a relative evil to it for believers. And it's not right, I think, for Christians to romanticize death um, because, or to minimize death. Um, there's often a point in one's life um, where you begin to realize you are going to die. And it hits you hard, and it should, because it's abnormal. There's something wrong. This is not a, a sort of the end of a, of a lovely life cycle, and, and it was good to be around, and then the curtain is closed. This is, this is indeed the last enemy. So we have the, the great hope of the afterlife, and we have the resurrection, and that's, that conquers uh, death. It's the death of death. But death is nonetheless real, and there's nothing romantic and nice about it. Um, as for suffering, the Christian sees that, again, um, suffering is real. It's a vestige of the fall. And while we suffer in Christ, and even with Christ, our suffering is never redemptive or something good in itself. It may involve improvement, but that's not the reason suffering is around. God, in his greatness, can improve us through suffering, 
but that's not the reason he allowed it to happen in the first place. Um, suffering is not an illusion, it's very real, and it's something that needs to be combated because we have a God of grace and of mercy who reverses the fall that we got ourselves into. Now, that's one consideration Christians need to bring into the question of euthanasia. Another consideration is the Sixth Commandment. What is the scope of the Sixth Commandment? For us, the issue, of course, of euthanasia is primarily determined not by where we stand on, on suffering and death and so forth, but on what the Bible teaches, what God's revealed will is, what the norm of Scripture is. And we need to decide such distinctions as um, the Sixth Commandment may cover so that we fully understand what it accepts and what it prohibits. For example, uh, we need to decide that there's a difference between manslaughter and murder, that there may be a difference between suicide and homicide. Intention must be measured along with the act itself, because obviously the kinds of motives involved in euthanasia are not strictly the same as those involved in classic suicide. Now, the Bible doesn't speak as far as I know, of terminal illness as justifying early death. But there are important parallels in that euthanasia is relieving from suffering or terminal condition by intentional action. So we need to know um, what the Sixth Commandment says. And finally, you want to put um, euthanasia in the total context of ethical issues. There are many involved one of them, for example, is the role of the civil law and the enforcement of the law. Um, there's always some distance between civil legislation and morality. And uh, one not only cannot, but may not be totally equated with the other. But we uh, are citizens and our laws are crucial to us, and um, we need to act um, in relation to the civil law as well as to the moral law. And then there's issues like consent and competence. Who has the right to decide? Whose decision is it? How seriously do we take the patient's wishes, the doctor's wishes, the family? What if the patient's unable to choose, and so on? All right. Now, According to uh, Ephesus, and I'll be very brief about this, there are four classes of approaches. Um, first, the first class of, of ethical approach says that active and passive euthanasia are always wrong. Refusing life-extending treatment or hastening death are both unacceptable, different as the nuances may be. That's one class of, of, of ethical response. The idea is that both of these, no matter whether you do it as passively as possible, are wrong. Second class of approach is that active and passive are permissible. The one has the same moral status as the other. 
they are at least sometimes acceptable. And in this view, the good end justifies the means. Okay, those are the two uh, kind of extremes. Then the third makes a distinction. Passive is permissible. Active, never. Okay, in this view, refusing life-extending treatment and shortening life are not the same thing. Their moral status is different. Presumably because in passive, you let die, like the James Bond title, but in active, you are actually killing. Now, there are differences within this view on such things as the timing involved. Um, and some people uh, make a very strong difference in withholding and withdrawing. Uh, that, for example, some will say that if treatment has begun, um, then uh, cessation is the same as murder. Um, others say that withholding uh, or, or withdrawing treatment is of the, basically the same moral status as withholding it. You just go back to a decision that you, had, you could have made earlier. And the fourth and final um, position is that active is preferable to passive. Active is preferable to passive. This may seem odd, but it's like saying that active euthanasia is really merciful, whereas passive euthanasia inflicts cruelty and unnecessary suffering. Now, those are the kind of issues as I see them. Um, and um, one more thing needs to be covered before we actually tackle uh, active euthanasia and then passive euthanasia, but we are into the, uh, the question itself, and that is um, suicide. Um, as I said, there are important parallels between euthanasia and suicide. <coughs> the word, of course, has a pretty pejorative sense, but let's use it in a specific way that relates it to euthanasia rather than speak generally about it. Suicide, according to Wenberg on page 36, is intentionally bringing about one's death by passive or active means. Suicide is intentionally bringing about one's death by passive or active means. A person who commits suicide acts on the desire to die, pursuing such course of action as is for the express purpose of dying. Although this may beg the question, you have to add that true suicide is self-imposed death contrary to the law of God. And um, the Sixth Commandment doesn't speak uh, particularly about, or specifically about suicide, but um, it's certainly implied. Uh, stewardship of the body is implied in the Sixth Commandment, and if you read the larger catechism, all kinds of uh, extensions of, of, of murder are made in the application of this, including bad stewardship of your body. And uh, carelessness is a sort of self-murder. Lack of such stewardship is, is not quite the moral equivalent of suicide, but um, um, it, it is a kind of murder. Suicide is to relieve or benefit the person. And um, uh, 
many ethicists therefore make a difference between suicide and, and poor stewardship of the body. Smoking too much uh, or even refusing a blood transfusion are not per se suicide. Um, neither is martyrdom. Neither is risking death, whether in battle or by pain-relieving drugs. Um, there is a fine line there, but uh, the risk of death to save someone else is not suicide because your primary intention is not to take your own life, but it's to save someone else's life. Now that risk may be almost uh, certain to, to uh, end in, in death, but that's not the same as suicide. Um, then, uh, of course, you have the kamikaze bombers and so forth. That, of course, is suicide, uh, though it's done for all kinds of purposes and causes that aren't meant to relieve your own pain, um, but it's still a kind of, of suicide. Even sacrificial death is not suicide. Therefore, it's very important to realize that our Lord on the cross was not committing suicide. He was giving his life for someone else. The purpose of death is not bound up in itself or relieving pain, but it's to save another. Now, how does euthanasia, how does euthanasia fit into this? Well, going to Wenberg, voluntary active euthanasia is a case of Circe's suicide. Voluntary active euthanasia is a case of Circe's suicide. That is, suicide committed for the purpose of avoiding grave personal harm. This is self-interested and done in the belief that one will be better off. Uh, on page, I think it's 76, yeah, uh, Wenberg explains what Circe's suicide is. And um, he says that um, voluntary active euthanasia is, is Circe's suicide because uh, the patient commits suicide through the agency of a physician, a nurse, or whomever, and does this for his or her benefit. In most discussions of euthanasia, the focus is on the moral propriety of physicians and family members cooperating with the terminal patient. In contrast, by framing matters in terms of suicide, we shift the focus to the patient and the moral legitimacy of his or her request for euthanasia. I'm assuming that we do have a strong obligation to preserve and protect our lives, to treat with the highest respect the gift of life that God has granted us, and to face the suffering and pain with courage and faith in God's good purposes. Nevertheless, we may want to know whether or not the human situation can, either, can ever become sufficiently burdensome, suffering sufficiently intense, and one's prospects sufficiently bleak so that one is relieved of this obligation and one can in good conscience end one's life. If you take an extreme example, the soldier trapped in a burning tank and so on. A less extreme example, a terminally ill patient who is suffering considerably from bone cancer or whatever, and to say yes in response to the question of ending life is to endorse a form of Circe's suicide. Um, now, I think that passive euthanasia, treatment refusal, should not be called suicide, even though the line is fine. 
Allowing a dying condition is not the same as creating one, avoiding prevention of it, or refusing to remove it. This is not the same as active, because we're not superimposing our own death-making on one's own dying. This may sound tricky, but what about a diabetic who, re who rejects insulin so that death may come sooner from diabetes rather than later from bone cancer? What about refusing treatment for pneumonia when you have another terminal illness like AIDS? My position is that those who would qualify as that those would qualify as active euthanasia. Omissions that intend death are morally equivalent to commissions, it seems to me. But relieving one as a priority over the other when death over the other may occur is not the same as active euthanasia. Now, what does the Bible say about uh, suicide? Well, I believe that the Bible forbids suicide as we have defined it, primarily because God is the Lord of life and only he has the right to terminate it when it may be terminated. He, only he has the right to determine when it may be terminated. Um, I think this is easier to say, or better to say, than all kinds of attempts to measure suffering, usefulness, fulfillment, and so on. Um, now, without wanting to be cruel, I think we have to be very careful when we uh, go into measuring the degree of suffering that somebody has um, in order to determine whether we can uh, kill that person or not. Um, obviously, most of us who's, who are in this room have not had that kind of extreme suffering, so have not been put to the test in the way some have. But um, life, of course, is more than biological existence, but it still is, is, is dangerous, I would say, to evaluate the worth of life based on how much or how little suffering we may do. And the same with extremely handicapped persons, tragic as that is. Um, has God allowed us to terminate the life that may have a lot to teach us, may, may have something very worthwhile to it, uh, whether we perceive it or not? Um, and then you have the very difficult question of a comatose patient. Um, how do we know, uh, you know, whether that life has any use or worth or not? Well, if we start defining worth and use in terms of responsiveness, of course, it's pretty easy. Uh, but if we turn it simply in terms of the call of God, then um, we have another moral level to deal with. So it seems to me that suicide um, almost, well, I, I would say always, involves evaluating life in terms other than the way God evaluates it and uh, taking, taking deliberate measures uh, to terminate that life for, for that reason. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over at this point. Side with John Frame uh, over against Beauchamp and Childress and others. Um, 
First, I believe that involuntary euthanasia is always wrong. I'm not talking about non-voluntary. Um, I, I, you know, I think this is an obvious point. Involuntary euthanasia is always wrong. Uh, not much to say here. The 20th century is a, is a sad testimony uh, to the evil of, of, of involuntary euthanasia. And uh, all kinds of um, motivations have been used, some of them seemingly noble, some of them completely active and passive euthanasia. Active euthanasia is, as I've said, um, direct action to take life. Um, now, if you define suicide as pursuing action for the express purpose of dying, then you can, and I, you define that as wrong, then you have to define active euthanasia as wrong. And I believe that active euthanasia, with, with the many variations, is prohibited in the Sixth Commandment. And while we're talking of Circe's suicide, this does not relieve the... Let me further make a distinction, and I here would side with John Frame uh, over against Beauchamp and Childress and others. Um, first, I believe that involuntary euthanasia is always wrong. I'm not talking about non-voluntary. Um, I, I, you know, I think this is an obvious point. Involuntary euthanasia is always wrong. Uh, not much to say here. The 20th century is a, is a sad testimony uh, to the evil of, of, of involuntary euthanasia. And uh, all kinds of... Um, motivations have been used, some of them seemingly noble, some of them completely ignoble, um, eugenics and trying to get rid of problems in society and so on. And it's simply an equivalent of, uh, of murder, um, whatever the, the justification might be. However, I do make a distinction between active and passive euthanasia. Active euthanasia is, as I've said, um, direct action to take life. Um, now, if you define suicide as pursuing action for the express purpose of dying, then you can, and I, you define that as wrong, then you have to define active euthanasia as wrong. And I believe that active euthanasia, with, with the many variations, is prohibited in the Sixth Commandment. And while we're talking of Circe's suicide, this does not relieve the question. We're taking a life when the law of God does not sanction it. It's neither capital punishment, indeed it's not punishment at all, nor self-defense. And while we must be extremely sensitive to suffering and possibly pray for the hastening of the end, it's not right to hasten that end ourselves. I'm generally wary of slippery slope arguments, yet I think there is a danger here of the slippery slope. Once we begin to open the door to active um, euthanasia, uh, it's hard to, to know or imagine where that might lead. And as you know, a couple of states are just about on the brink of doing that. And um, I think it's, uh, it's a very dangerous thing. What about the situations with, which might seem to warrant it? Well, with, with our position that we've developed here on the, on the value of life, it just isn't possible. Uh, we don't want to be romantic about handicap or excruciating pain, but worth is not de defined as happiness or usefulness. Um, what about the permanently vegetative state? 
Um, a person may be brain dead, have a flat EEG, uh, but is still breathing and pumping blood. Why not remove the nasogastric tubes? Um, people go to uh, great lengths like ventilators and artificial feeding, and sometimes out of desperation, uh, but often uh, because respect for the person includes respect for their body, even though their brain is dead. Um, this, I would argue, is not total death anyway. It's not even death at all. Uh, we are protecting the defenseless. In addition, there's a symbolic show of commitment to life and to its protection. Um, and I believe that, however, that it may be right to withhold or withdraw treatment here. And here, um, I believe that um, we move over into passive euthanasia, which under certain circumstances is permissible. Passive euthanasia allows the patient to die when life-prolonging treatment could be applied. Passive euthanasia is acceptable, not required. Um, we're not killing, but letting die. John Frame doesn't even like the term because uh, it seems to make it on the same wavelength as active. Uh, he just, he calls it something else. Uh, he calls it uh, dying with dignity. Uh, euthanasia, he says, is euthanasia. Um, Christians are not concerned with good death or dying well, whatever that means, but they're concerned with protecting life in the most appropriate way. It may be that the most appropriate way to protect a life or to dignify a life is to withhold or withdraw treatment. But this is not at all the moral equivalent of euthanasia, of promoting good death. What are the conditions under which we may exercise passive euthanasia, whether we like the term or not? Well, the patient must be truly in a terminal condition. Um, there's a popular saying that life is a terminal disease. Um, this is a cynical view, and it's wrong, because uh, it's not life that's the problem, but sin and the fall. Death is therefore unnatural. Um, I don't even like to speak of he died of a natural death. That, that seems to normalize it, uh, though I suppose... Um, uh, it's so common uh, that you don't want to fight it too much. It's unfruitful. But death is not a regular part of a cycle. A terminal condition is one in which there is no reasonable hope for survival beyond a few weeks. Now that may sound very vague and arbitrary, but what else could it be? Um, Dr. Pellegrino, who is the director of the uh, medical ethics uh, department at American University in Washington says that a terminal condition, one in which there's no reasonable hope of survival, can be determined as between two and four weeks. And, uh, you know, uh, if a patient goes on, um, wonderful. If a patient uh, dies before that, um, well, it, it was terminal. Uh, but you have to define it somehow and obviously, no human being is infallible about this. If we knew, you know, that, that Aunt Mary was going to survive uh, and have a wonderful life afterwards, um, 
and that that was going to be true of everybody in a coma, we, we wouldn't have terminal conditions. But most um, experience and most measured cases show that there are patterns and that, in fact, um, there are pretty good ways to determine the likelihood of survival without machinery and so on. Um, this means the question of extraordinary versus ordinary treatment uh, comes in. Um, rejecting burdensome treatment, I think, is a morally acceptable stance. The reason that we can reject treatment on the grounds of whether it's burdensome or not is because we are not intending the death of someone only to escape burdens that the treatment brings. And in that way, we are even dignifying life. We might foresee death as a possibility, but that is still not an intended consequence. Um, on page 148, Wenberg uh, makes a pretty good distinction here. Um, he says, there are some circumstances in which one might, with moral justification, either do or omit doing something that will have the foreseen consequence of shortening one's life. Just as a dying patient might have painkillers administered for the purpose of controlling intense pain, even though those painkillers may accelerate his or her dying, so also the dying patient can omit certain burdensome treatments, even though this omission may be life-shortening. The patient does not intend to shorten life, though that result is foreseen. And if there are adequate justifying reasons for such an action or omission, it may be permitted. Thus, intending to shorten one's life is absolutely banned, whereas foreseeing, though not intending, the shortening of one's life may in some, though not all, circumstances be morally allowable. And he, uh, he has a footnote here. Um, it's important to stress that this position does not sanction every rejection of life-extending treatment where the life-shortening consequences are merely foreseen but not intended. It only says that such life-shortening consequences, because unintended, might be morally permissible. To determine whether or not they are, one must look to the amount of suffering and gross inconvenience that they cause the patient along with death's proximity. Um, he says, for example, uh, major surgery might be rejected because it'll bring considerable suffering and gross inconvenience to an already dying patient who wants instead to die free of that burden. Um, and what's important here is you, you do not reject surgery because it extends one's life or one's dying. That's not the purpose. You're concerned with the quality of one's dying, not the duration of it. And I would maybe feel better if he had said the quality of one's life at this point. Yes. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you, and I, I take uh, issue with Wenberg on, on this as well. I think there, the clear intention of the stopping of that treatment is, is to die. Uh, and uh, that's very different from relieving pain of a dying patient, which may shorten the life, but it's short anyway. Uh, and uh, even there, you have to be very careful because you don't relieve pain by injecting a lethal dose. Um, it, these are very tricky areas, you know. 
just last week in, in the Medical Ethics uh, Committee, we, we uh, discussed um, a patient who was um, dying of cancer, and one of the doctors on the committee um, authorized a fair amount of, of morphine. And um, in their conscience, it wasn't lethal, but it would almost certainly hasten the process of, of death if it, uh, if it continued as such. And these are, you know, these are things that you have to deal with. I, I'd love to know what our doctor thinks of, of, of such things. And in your judgment, would that child have lived a lot longer? Yeah. Yeah, see, that's, I guess, I agree with you that I, you wouldn't want to do it intentionally, but... Yeah. Yeah, right. right. And that's where this uh, Washington state law is going to be a problem, because... They're going to cite cases like that as um, allowing somebody to give a pretty strong dose, knowing that it's, it's going to really shorten the life. And, uh, and then from there, it'll be difficult to draw the line, I think, to, uh, you know, just, you know, it's foreseen because the, it, it, might. it might, you know. Yeah. Let me add a few other things to the mix here. Um, uh, the uh, the economic dimension. This is very crass, but you got to talk about it because it's very real. You can't put a price on life, but about 5,000 permanently comatose individuals are receiving long-term care in the United States. Two years of care for one of these is 2,000. I'm oh, sorry, <clears throat> 280 thousand dollars. Two years of care for one of these is two hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars. Now if you care by skilled nursing it's not quite as much as that but it's still very high. And one of the moral questions you have to ask is should not this money be redirected to where it can really help? Now I know that's a loaded question because what do you mean by really help? Um, if I've, if you've got life as precious, then life is precious. But I think it is a, uh, it is a question that you have to raise. I mean, if it had not been for the opportunity of some of this care for the wealthy, um, or for people whose insurance will repay and so forth, um, they wouldn't have lived anyway. Uh, and, um, so, uh, all that money could have been, theoretically anyway, redirected for people who have lesser things um, um, whose case can, can uh, lead to death if not treated. Um, and uh, so you do have the question of redirecting the funds and of hospital beds and of equipment and so on. It's, it's incredibly costly. Um, and that's not the only consideration. And uh, most of us, when uh, we have a child who's sick, we, we'll do anything for that child. You know, it doesn't matter. The cost doesn't matter. We'll, will hawk everything. But there are cases where you wonder if $280,000 a year for 5,000 people, uh, every two years for 5,000 people, is, is not money that could have been used for, for people who uh, have less than terminal uh, comatose states. Uh, another <laughs> issue in here, I think, which is uh, very important, the uh, 
withholding of food and water. Um, to me, there's an, a very great difference between withholding the tube under some circumstances and refusing to feed someone. I think there are cases where you, just for human humanity's sake, even though the person is going to die, you feed them and give them to drink, you know. You don't starve them. Um, that's a different question from putting a tube in and, and, and forcing the person to stay alive by means, among other things, of, um, of intravenous feeding um, as a life support thing uh, in the case of a, of a terminal person. So I think a strong word needs to be said in favor of human care and tenderness, uh, which is associated with food and drink, and, and beyond that, of course, because um, the issues are intensely personal. Um, two more things, and then, well, we'll have our break, and then we can go back and discuss all this. Uh, the first is, is there any moral equivalent be between withholding and withdrawing treatment? Many Christians feel that there's a tremendous difference, that withholding is one thing. Just don't give, don't start. But if you, if you have started, then don't withdraw, because that is a kind of, of euthanasia. Um, in my judgment, if it can be determined that it was an error to begin the treatment in the first place, uh, withdrawing is a kind of return to the situation of the beginning and uh, has the moral equivalency of being back where we started. It's not exactly the same, but I think they're very closely related and I don't think we are automatically going into active euthanasia when we decide to uh, withdraw treatment. And, of course, here we have the Cruzan case and others uh, which uh, have uh, informed us about this. Um, and I, I guess I would say that the, uh, the w withdrawing of treatment in that particular case um, was really not the moral equivalent of some sort of active euthanasia. Uh, you may want to come back at me with that, but I, that's that's my position on that. Right. So, well, maybe it's going to help. And then if it doesn't, you can go ahead and, and, and withdraw. Uh, it's very difficult because you are keeping someone alive and you know that the withdrawing, well, you know. You're pretty sure the withdrawing is going to do them in, but there are amazing cases where the person, you withdraw from the ventilator and so on, and on they go. Uh, I had a case like that uh, come to my attention last year. One of my uh, classmates uh, from seminary days, out of the blue, called. He said, I hear you're teaching ethics now, Bill. Good, I have a question for you. And I thought, oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> and um, his dad was, was uh, in a coma, and, and uh, they had decided to put him uh, on a ventilator, and um, he wanted to know what, what I thought about cutting off the ventilator. So I asked him all these questions, went into great detail about the case and so forth and so on. And I suggested he wait a few days and then, the, you know, if nothing is produced, I, do, I just didn't see the evil of, of taking him off the ventilator. They did. They took him off. 
And lo and behold, he's still alive today. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, now, that's, this is a rare thing, but it, it does happen, you know. So you, you, it's not as if you know you're going to kill this person, you know, in, in, that, in that particular case. And I, I just feel that withholding, withdrawing in that case can be legitimate. The, yeah, the family had, in the first place, uh, ha hadn't wanted this to go on, you know. And uh, they were pretty sure that this was the equivalent of her wishes. And they had produced documents. The court had ordered her to, to be kept alive because, um, you know, courts are conservative about this, as, as they should be. Um, now, there's been some fuzziness about it, because the Operation Rescue people came in there and one of the, a couple of them testified that they saw her pick up a spoon and eat. And uh, if that's true, of course, then we're dealing with a very, very different case. I have my doubts about that, you know, but uh, this, is, uh, this is what their position was. I, I think if we go back to the patient's wishes and the family's wishes, um, the, the, the withdrawal was done on that, on that basis and never should have been instituted in the first place. I know that's tricky because I, I think it might be right to institute it in the first place as a, a way to, to tide you over a certain stage. I mean, you know. There's a difference between forcing right. food and putting in a tube in somebody who's comatose for the first three or four days of right. an illness and leaving it in forever yeah. know, as they don't be better. Yeah. You don't know when you put it in right. that they're not going to recover in a week. Right. It can, and it can go for a long time. What, 37 years is the, is the record so far? Um, the final issue is competence. Who decides? Uh, now, next week we're going to consider the living will. We're going to study one of those, and, and we'll go into that. But um, this is a huge issue. Uh, and uh, I think my answer is that when it's according to God's law, the patient must decide. The patient, however, should seek counsel from the doctor and from the pastor or the church, if it's a Christian. Um, and it seems to me that this is not because of some sort of patient right uh, to self-determination. It's because the... Uh, the patient is a, moral, a morally responsible person who, before God's word, um, needs to agree about these policies before the family or the hospital can have the good conscience to go ahead and, and have a, act on a certain procedure. Um, and I, I do, well, we will get into this next week, but I do think that it's best to have expressed those wishes earlier um, so that the family can be informed. Uh, and in my own family, this was a great help to us. Uh, both my father and my mother died under circumstances where there could have been the preservation of biological life uh, by extraordinary means. In the case of my father, maybe for it would have lasted a few days. In the case of my mother, it might have made her last for, for a few weeks. But both of them were clearly terminal, and both had expressed the wish in writing and in front of me uh, that they be um, not allowed to be subjected to this. So it was a very clear decision, and it was a big help.